Thank you for joining us today. My name is Brad Miller, and this is the Chronically Human Podcast, where we have discussions aimed at creating a better world with more individual freedom and less unnecessary suffering. Today, our guest is Dr. Peter Greenspoon. He is a primary care doctor in Boston, teaches at Harvard Med School, the author of Free Refills, a book detailing his addiction and recovery with pain pills, and he's also a huge advocate for legalizing and utilizing cannabis as medicine. We have a great discussion about his unique perspective on the perceived opioid crisis, how the government's response to reducing overdose deaths has negatively impacted people in chronic pain. We also discuss his work advocating for the use of medical cannabis, and he shares great information about who the institutional forces are working hard to keep cannabis illegal. We also discuss his father's work, Dr. Lester Grinspoon, who was an original advocate back in the 60s and 70s for cannabis as medicine and also for keeping psychedelics legal. I exercise my health freedom by consuming Kratom. I've been in chronic pain for over 30 years, and now I use Kratom and CBD oil to help improve my pain and allow me to live a fuller, more productive life. The only brand of Kratom I trust is Urban Ice Organics. They test their Kratom, they use good manufacturing practices, they stand behind their product, and they are active in keeping Kratom legal for us all, and they also fund vital Kratom research. You can find them at naturalorganics.com. That's Natural Organics with organic spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-X.com. You can use the promo code chronicallyhuman20 at checkout to get 20% off your next order. That code again is chronicallyhuman20, no spaces, to use at checkout to get 20% off. I really enjoyed our conversation today with Peter, and I hope you do as well. And let us know your thoughts about using cannabis as medicine and why health freedom is important to you. Thank you, Peter, for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Excellent. Well, I wanted to have you on because I've been in chronic pain for over 30 years. At age 11, I had my colon removed due to ulcerative colitis. I've had 20 surgeries. 50 hospital stays and, you know, hundreds wow. of doctors visit. So, so I definitely understand that the chronic pain world. And unfortunately there's a lot of, um, a lot of people out there who are hurting because of the uh, response to the op- opioid overdose crisis that's going on today. But I also wanted to get your, your take as far as your story goes with your personal experience, but also your advocacy for medical cannabis, which I think is absolutely fantastic because you are really out there on the front lines trying to convince doctors and politicians, it seems like, that cannabis is actually a medicine and that could be that can help folks. No, absolutely. Well, first of all, there are two opiate crises going on. One is that we have more people dying from opiate overdoses every year than died in the entire Vietnam War. I should say more Americans dying from overdoses than died in the entire Americans died in the entire Vietnam War. And the second opiate crisis is that the chronic pain patients that need opiates aren't getting it because the government decided that the way to stop the opiate crisis is to intimidate doctors not to prescribe opiates to the chronic pain patients. Mm -hmm. So what's happening is the overdoses are actually going up, not down, because the people who are addicted and need help or the people who are in chronic pain are not getting their legally prescribed opiates because the doctors are afraid to prescribe it. So they're going and getting illegal opiates, which tend to be fentanyl, which is profoundly dangerous, and they're overdosing. So uh, the government's response to the opiate crisis has been cataclysmic. So there are two opiate crises, not one, the crisis of people overdosing that are addicted and the crisis of chronic pain patients being abruptly cut off uh, from their chronic pain medications. So I think that um, chronic pain is a critically important issue. I am a primary care doctor. I see people suffering from it every day. It's estimated that 40 to 100 Americans are suffering from from chronic pain. Um, People are living longer. They're getting sort of a bigger, older, and more rotund. And, you know, people's knees are, are giving out and they get arthritis and sciatica and people develop chronic pain. What do we use to treat pain? Tylenol does nothing. Right. Uh, non-steroidals give you a heart attack, destroy your kidney, and give you an ulcer, particularly the kidney. I have so many patients in their 60s and 70s whose kidneys are dying from using too much naproxen or ibuprofen. Um, opiates, 
there's not a lot of great evidence that they work well for chronic pain, but if you're on them, you can't be taken off them. And for some people, they work really well. They should be an option. But I think medical cannabis is a very safe and effective option for some people. And we don't have a lot of options for chronic pain. Beggars can't be choosers. It's absolutely ridiculous that that isn't an option open to every chronic pain patient in the country because it does work for a lot of people. And it's it's arguably a lot safer than the non-steroidals. And, you know, it's um, arguably a lot safer than the opiates as well. That's a great point about cannabis being safer than over-the-counter because there's a lot of uh, people out there pushing the over-the-counter stuff. And that, that has some really dangerous side effects as well. Uh, just one, one thing on the long-term, you know, proven long-term um, efficacy of, of pain pills you know, the, the studies out there, a lot of times there's some issues with those studies. And I think a lot of those um, have to do with, you know, cutting it off after a year, people dropping out and those things. So there are definitely some, uh, you're definitely right that there's not those long-term studies that show efficacy, but there's also tons of anecdotal stories that they are. And I think that's where we're kind of caught in the middle um, with that issue. But as far as the, the medical cannabis goes, is that it's all anecdotal just about, right? That, that people have been using it really for thousands and thousands of years as medicine. And we've been living in the dark ages basically for the last 80 years due, due to prohibition. And so there hasn't been those studies because the government has tried to eradicate this plant from the planet. Absolutely. Um, the government, our government has only funded studies into the harms of cannabis for the last 40, 50 years. They haven't funded any studies into the benefits of cannabis, but studies are coming out from other countries. For example, Israel is studying cannabis very carefully, and they're having phenomenal success with conditions such as colitis, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, um, fibromyalgia. I think it's a, um, a first-line treatment for fibromyalgia in Israel. It's very effective for headache and, um, you know, for spasticity, um, for uh, Parkinson's pain, for uh, HIV-related neuropathy. More and more research is coming out, um, which complements the anecdotal evidence. Uh, doctors don't love anecdotal evidence right. because there's anecdotal evidence for everything. So doctors are going to want uh, evidence that you can sink your teeth into. But the evidence is coming. It's just not coming in this country because it's still cannabis is still scheduled, um, classified as Schedule 1 of the Controlled Substance Act, which means it is extreme abuse liability, which isn't true, and uh, no medical utility which isn't true. So we've got to get it rescheduled um, so that we could do research much more easily as they're doing in Canada, Europe, Israel, and around the world. That's fantastic. I know Israel has been on the cutting edge for a long time. And I read your, your, uh, your dad's book, uh, Marijuana, the Forbidden Medicine. And he talked about how actually it was the United States who started to fund some of that research in Israel <laughs> clandestinely because some senator had a kid who was who had some medical issues and they were trying to find if it was safe or not, or, or he was using it and he w wasn't sure if it was safe or not for him. So it's exactly. interesting that Israel is, is on the front lines of that. Well, the hypocrisy, we could spend an hour talking about that. The people who uh, fund a lot of the opposition to these medical cannabis initiatives are the alcohol industry, because when you legalize cannabis, alcohol use goes down 10 to 20%. So that's pretty hypocritical. Mm -hmm. uh, the private prison industry funds a lot of these medical cannabis opposition to the medical cannabis initiatives. And big pharma uh, funds the opposition to the medical cannabis initiatives. When they legalized recreational cannabis in Colorado, uh, they found that prescriptions across the board um, in Medicare D patients went down. And I interpret that as people can't sleep instead of waiting to see their doctor, spending a big copay and getting Ambien, you know, which makes you very hungover the next day and makes you drive and eat through your refrigerator in a trance, people take a puff or two. Uh, instead of waiting to see your doctor and getting a muscle relaxant, which turns you into a zombie, people take a puff. Instead of waiting to see your doctor and getting Viagra, which isn't covered by insurance and costs, you know, a third of your household per pill, um, people just take a puff or two. So people uh, use uh, cannabis for sleep, for sexual problems, 
for relaxation, for anxiety, for insomnia. And, you know, it's also sort of about patient empowerment because you don't need a doctor to um, micromanage and give you permission to treat every little thing. So I think that's part of the reason why 93% of Americans are in favor of legalizing medical cannabis. And the patients are way ahead of the doctors on this issue. It's like on this particular issue, somehow the patients were able to say, uh, the emperor's wearing no clothing much more quickly than the doctors have been able to. It's really um, just been an interesting cultural phenomenon. Yeah, definitely. And and I think it's interesting, you know, I use the term big pharma all the time. And it's interesting <laughs> to hear a doctor say that as well, because a lot of people have a uh, an opinion about doctors that they're in the pocket of big pharma, and they don't see the dangers of the enormous pharmaceutical industry working with the FDA and the CDC and the DEA. To really restrict our freedom in what we can and can't do. And your, your talk about patient empowerment is so important because I've been, I, w- I opted out of the pain management system because I think it's very intrusive. It treats people like they're on parole and, you know, you're made to pee in a cup, forced to go there. And that's the opposite of empowerment. And so I actually use Kratom now to help control my chronic pain. And we had a, uh, a gentleman on recently and he had Crohn's for 20 years. And he went through all of the standard treatments and they were giving him like chemotherapy type infusions to knock down, you know, to, to uh, help him with his Crohn's. And, and he just felt terrible. And so he stopped all treatment, which I don't advise. This is not medical advice, of course. But, um, you know, through uh, experimenting with cannabis, he was able to get his Crohn's into full remission. And now he uses Kratom to, to help with pain as well. I was going to tell you that people, there are some studies in Israel where people use cannabis for Crohn's and like 10 out of 11 will stop taking their medication because the symptoms go away. But it's very bizarre. They don't get into biochemical remission. They do, you know, uh, samples of the small intestine and they still have active Crohn's, Mm -hmm. but clinically they're in remission. So it's the strangest thing. So cannabis makes their disease symptoms go away, but doesn't put them in biological remission. I mean, you could argue if they feel fine and they don't have any symptoms, then, hey, they're living their life and they're fine. So it's been like surprisingly and phenomenally effective for the symptoms of Crohn's, but it hasn't actually made the disease disappear. So they're just at the dawn. We're just at the beginning of this whole brave new world where we're cannabis has more than a hundred active compounds. Some make you hungry. Some make you lose weight. Some control blood sugar. Some fight cancer. Some, um, you know, make you sleepy and relaxed. Uh, It's going to be infinite, uh, the potential. And it's really, um, amazing how it's been suppressed. I mean, the endocannabinoid system, this entire, uh, neurotransmitter system, sort of like the adrenaline system, even bigger in our mind and body that controls our thoughts, um, our memory, our immune system is only taught in about 13% of medical schools. I mean, the government's been so successful in suppressing research into cannabis that they don't even treat, they don't even teach the neurotransmitter system um, and the cellular system by which cannabis works. And you know, once we now that we have this whole other uh, gigantic uh, system to play with, we're going to be developing therapies like crazy. I mean, it's really exciting. Uh, it's also just really amazing to think that because of political reasons and competing commercial reasons and because of racism, cannabis has been illegal. It's never been illegal because of public health reasons. It's always been racism, competing commercial interests, and uh, politics. That's exactly right. And one of the uh, high-level Nixon officials before he died, he admitted, Earl <laughs> yep, and he admitted that the war on drugs, the Controlled Substances Act, which spawned what we now uh, think of as the war on drugs with the DEA as the enforcement arm, was created to, to uh, go after Nixon's political enemies, which were the black civil rights movement and the anti-war hippies. Exactly. I remember that exact quote, uh, we could arrest their leaders. Um, it gave them an infinite excuse to to arrest the leaders of the, those two movements, and um, you know he flat out admitted that they were lying about the drugs. But uh, unfortunately, somehow the American medical establishment believed them, even though they admitted they were lying about it, and to this day is still perpetuating these 1950s era myths 
about um, how evil cannabis is when we're learning from other countries uh, how much medical utility uh, there is. There's something very insular about the med American medical system. Mm -hmm. And information from other countries doesn't seem to freely trickle in. Um, and I wonder why. I mean, kind of global trade of information, it, it just seems that studies in Europe are just as valid as studies um, published here. But somehow um, it's not happening as quickly as you'd think because the studies coming out of Europe are just, and Israel are just uh, phenomenally impressive. And that's a lot of that has to do with patients finding it themselves. That now with the internet, you talk about the free exchange of ideas. That there's not this cloister of these uh, appointed priests that can control what is medicine and what is not now. As far as at least information goes, I know with the prescription pad, there's still and the Controlled Substances Act, there's physical control, but there's not any more control over the the information. And it's interesting you talk about the the uh, the medical colleges and what they actually teach because they only spend what I've heard is like eight hours on pain and about eight hours on nutrition and it sounds like they're not getting any almost zero um, uh, teachings about the endocannabinoid system which was only really uh, discovered fairly recently and like you said it it's everywhere in the body it's it's in organs it's in the immune system it's in the brain well, and the quality of what they teach is not great. I mean, the stuff I was taught in medical school was just warmed over reefer madness from the 1950s. But hopefully it's getting better now. I haven't seen a, a recent uh, medical textbook. But, you know, there are really two different narratives about cannabis. One is the addiction cannabis narrative, the addiction psychiatry narrative, which mm -hmm. focuses on teenage, teenage use, you know, um, cognitive problems. And it doesn't it's very alarmist and it doesn't focus at all on the benefits. Like the addiction psychiatry field doesn't seem to understand or um, accommodate for the concept of like an adult recreationally using cannabis. And the way they uh, define cannabis use disorder seems to encompass like every single medical cannabis patient, you know, uh, increasing dose and tolerance are two of the categories. And if cannabis use disorder, you need to have two out of 11 um, to have cannabis use disorder. So they somehow have conveniently, um, I mean, I jokingly say that they've defined cannabis use disorder as anybody who benefits medically or enjoys it socially or recreationally has cannabis use disorder. Then the other narrative is the cannabis activists, you know, and I'll say something like, you know, I'm not an anti-cannabis doctor, which is a rare thing uh, to be a, a doctor that's not anti-cannabis. Well, less and less rare. But I do think that you shouldn't make cannabis into edibles that little kids and pets are going to eat. We should do some common sense regulations. You wouldn't put kratom into a gummy bear. I mean, it's just common sense because a four-year-old can't tell the difference. And the cannabis activists are like, we've been fighting for freedom for 40 years. We don't want any restrictions. And I'm like, you're the best advertisement for prohibition that there could possibly be because you won't even accept these common sense regulations. I mean, you wouldn't put ibuprofen in a gummy bear. Why would you put cannabis, which is psychoactive, in a gummy bear? I mean, as a four-year-old, it's your duty to eat the whole bag of gummy bears if you discover them unguarded. So why would you put something psychoactive in a gummy bear? So we have these two different narratives, and I think we need to come to some reasonable middle ground where we're not hyping up how dangerous it is because we make a lot of money treating cannabis use disorder and sending people to rehab for cannabis use disorder, which is ridiculous. On the other hand, we're not throwing out any sensible regulation because it is a, a, a drug that some people get into trouble with and some people can misuse and is psychoactive and does have issues with driving and people who are pregnant and breastfeeding shouldn't uh, use it. And it does need regulation. It shouldn't just be overly commercialized and unregulated. So it just seems there's so much room for middle ground. But for some reason, the cannabis, it seems to engender uh, very extreme positions on both sides. And I think that has to do with uh, how long it's been uh, illegal, too, because, yes. you know, people fighting so hard for freedom, a lot of times when they do get that freedom, they're, they're really reluctant to give up any ground because they feel like that's going to lead to prohibition again down the road. And personally, I'm a freedom guy, but I understand what you're saying about the gummy bears. And I think, too, in Colorado, we're seeing a lot of people self-regulating as far as the edibles go, because when it was first le legalized, you know, people would go there and they would take too much. I did that myself when I was experimenting with cannabis for my issues. And I, I eat like a chocolate bar. And I don't think I moved for, you know, for 16 to 18 hours 
So I think there is definitely a learning curve, and I think people are starting to catch up. But you do have a good point about, you know, leaving gummy bears around that are full of THC. That's, that's never a good idea. Yeah, I mean, I just think if we can sensibly regulate it ourselves, we don't give the prohibitionists a lot of ammunition. And it just seems with a few common sense regulations, um, we could save a lot of misery. I mean, most of the horror stories you hear are from edibles. You know, I mean, I'm someone who in my past life has smoked cannabis by the acre. And so I, I have a lot of experience with it. And, you know, consuming too much cannabis is a very miserable experience. And, you know, I just want to protect people from that. It turns people off of it if they, the first time they try it, they eat 20 gummy bears and they they have an anxiety attack for 14 hours. It's not a great experience. And again, the little kids and pets is like totally, it's like a low hanging fruit. It's like an unforced error. It just seems like such a small price to pay for legalization. And you hear all these horror stories. And I feel like if the advocates can just accept some really simple common sense restrictions that would take away all the ammunition from the prohibitionists. I mean, that's just my philosophy. Sure. No, I totally understand that because those phone calls to the police, if somebody has taken like eating a whole tray of pot brownies is, right. is not a good look for the people who want to keep it legal. Exactly. And you know, how would someone know they're pot brownies? Someone might just think they're brownies and not, and then eat the whole tray of them or eat three or four of them and just be unintentionally impaired or they might be, they might drive. They might not even know that they're brownies. So that's where danger comes from when it doesn't have to. So. Yeah, definitely. So the advice is know your friends, make sure nobody's dosing you without no, you know, without you (laughs) knowing it. Definitely. Well, you had a good point about, uh, you know, the dangers of cannabis from the addiction psychiatry world. They're really ginning that up recently. There was a New York Times opinion piece back in December that talked about that, that cannabis is much more dangerous than we think. And actually, Joe Rogan, I don't know if you watched the Joe Rogan podcast or not. He had Dr. Yeah. He had Alex uh, Barrison on there who uh, co-wrote the piece. And he was saying that there is cognitive danger with taking cannabis and he and he takes it from the perspective of the psychiatrist. And he was saying that schizophrenia is a big issue, but I think that people a lot of times with mental issues are trying to self-medicate and maybe the two are conflated that the cannabis is not causing the mental issues. The mental issues is pushing people to experiment with cannabis. Right, exactly. Well, Alex Berenson is a crime writer and a fiction writer, and his book is pure fiction. Like, there's, like, nothing in his book that's true. So I don't know why anybody listens to him at all. I mean, it's, like, flat out, like, it's, he confused fiction with nonfiction. So did his publisher. So I don't know why anybody even listens to him at all. Um, I was really surprised by that from the, from the get-go. But the point about uh, schizophrenia and cannabis, um, we don't know the directionality. Certainly, cannabis use is associated with schizophrenia, but a lot of things are associated with a lot of other things, but that doesn't mean one is causally related to the other. And they have been uh, discovered to be in a common gene, um, cannabis use and schizophrenia. And we, some people think that the schizophrenia, just as you mentioned, is causing the cannabis use, meaning that people who have a tendency to develop schizophrenia have sort of a, a preclinical prodrome um, where they're like a little bit off or right. unhappy or not quite centered. And they use the cannabis to sort of self-medicate uh, from a much earlier age. So that sort of the ultimate schizophrenia is causing the cannabis use. Whereas at the same time, if you are using cannabis, it can cause um, the psychotic symptoms to be worse. Mm-hmm. So right. it's just hard to know uh, which way the directionality is going. Again, um, the studies have been looking for harm for the last 40 years. Right. So I feel like we haven't really studied this. I feel like we have to throw out a lot of what we know because it's not really science if you're saying cannabis is evil, now let's do the study to prove it. The, the addiction psychiatrists haven't been saying for the last 40 years, is cannabis bad Let's do the, or good? Let's do the study. Mm-hmm. They were saying it is bad. The government tells me it's bad. I'm going to mindlessly believe that. And then they're going to give me, you know, millions of dollars of juicy NIDA, National Institute of Drug Abuse money to prove that. And I'm going to do these studies. Now, that's not science. I mean, I studied philosophy of science. I was a philosophy major of college. Science occurs in a 
sociopolitical context. Mm -hmm. And this sociopolitical context was, let's show how bad marijuana is to support the government's position. And the researchers, the addiction psychiatrists, and the doctors just went along with this. And it's sort of pathetic. So I think that we need to sort of put at minimum like an asterisk on all the studies, kind of like the home run leader who used steroids. It's like he did hit all those home runs, but he was on steroids. So how valid is it? Right. He did hit the home runs, but he was on steroids. I think a lot of the research needs an asterisk, and we sort of need to start from scratch and say, what is really going on here? Let's have some unbiased, unagenda-driven research. And I think there is an issue with science today, with re, uh, reproducibility, definitely a replication of science, you know, with all these studies that are going on, the debate about statistical significance, whether that should be thrown out at all now, that they're, they're talking about that. And like you talked about the human bias, I think people really don't understand that there's a huge amount of human error, bias, and judgment that goes into every single study, especially with public health and with economics. Right. I mean, they did that study which showed there was like an eight-point IQ drop with cannabis. Then they restudied it, and they're like, oh, we forgot to include socioeconomic factors. And then they reevaluated it, and it turns out that the socioeconomic factors explained the eight-point IQ drop. And But the first article is still cited by – I've seen these – addiction psychiatrists give speeches and they still cite the IQ drop. Mm -hmm. And then I send them the article which refuted it. And they're like, Oh, I had no idea. I didn't see the second article. Right. And it's just, you know, in a nutshell, they will study like these poor college kids, these poor kids, excuse me, in Australia. And they'll be like, you know, these poor kids smoke marijuana. These poor kids don't go to college. And they're like, ha, Smoking marijuana is associated with not going to college, but it's like these kids are poor. They wouldn't go to college anyways. The marijuana is a symptom because they're bored and they don't have any prospects, not the cause of them not going to college. There's so much gotcha um, research in the marijuana world, and some of the studies are downright silly. So again, I think we need to like approach it and start it again with an open mind. You know, I, I, you can imagine how, uh, how much they roll out the welcome mat uh, to me when they hear this sort of attitude but it's what i honestly believe and a lot of people agree with me it's just it's it's been sort of ridiculous i think the tide is turning and you have a great point about the national institute of health and how much they actually fund all medicine and research and those billions of dollars of taxpayer money because the government doesn't have any money that it doesn't take from somebody else to use for these research studies and you're not going to get research to refute the official position you're going to get research money to actually do the research to support what they're looking for. Right. I mean, a lot of the research the government does is neutral into like, I don't know, whatever, the lifestyle habits of polar bears. But um, I think, you know, more recently it's uh, become a lot more uh, polarized, um, like in the last year or two, without saying anything political. But I think scientists and the government are in a very difficult position right now. And... Um, the government does do a lot of, of good research. You know, I think that a lot of the tobacco research they do is really good. And more and more, a lot of the alcohol research is really good. But they still have to get over their uh, bias against cannabis. And if Israel can do it, Europe can do it, parts of Europe. And if Canada can do it, and now Mexico is actually doing a poll to all of its citizens, should cannabis be legal? Wow. And of course, like two-thirds of them probably or three-quarters are going to say yes. I don't understand why our government has to be stuck in the Middle Ages about this. There's no reason for it. I get that, you know, again, big pharma and the alcohol industry are against cannabis, but we don't have to be medieval, uh, you know, Luddites about cannabis. We, we can enter the modern world. Nothing's stopping us. If 93% of Americans are in favor of legal access to medical marijuana. And now with the recent polls, about two thirds of Americans are in favor of just flat out legalizing cannabis, including 52% of Republicans and most Democrats and most independents. Why wouldn't, you know, why are we still not legalizing? It doesn't make any sense. It's a question of legalizing and regulating it intelligently, as opposed to having it be illegal so that people get arrested. People use product that's unsafe, that hasn't been tested. Uh, it's on the black market. Criminals are dealing it. People get arrested for using it. They're going to use it anyways. Why not 
have it be legal, safe, and taxed. It makes so much more sense. And that's a great point about prohibition, that it's cost over a trillion dollars for the war on drugs. Millions and millions of people are sitting in prison right now for possessing a plant. And that ruins not only their life, but it ruins their family's life as well. And so the destruction of communities has been a huge issue with that. And if you th and if you do believe what Richard Nixon's, uh, you know, the guy in the Richard Nixon administration said, it was by design. It feels like, and I think there's a lot of people that do are starting to see that that it's not a good idea to uh, to continue prohibition because a lot of what we blame on drugs is actually caused by the prohibition itself. No, I I agree. I mean, I personally, kratom is a good example. Mm -hmm. Kratom should be legal regulated and studied. If you want to buy Kratom, you should, if you buy, I don't know, 50 milligrams of Kratom, you should be sure that it's 50 milligrams of Kratom. You should know it doesn't have any additives or heavy metals, and we should be studying what are the harms and benefits of Kratom. As it is now, the government keeps threatening to make it illegal. People buy it, you know, at online, which isn't regulated, or at, uh, you know, paraphernalia shops, which is, they rip you off from the price and it's not regulated. And they don't really know what they're getting. They don't really know what the dose is. And uh, they can't even be ensured a stable supply because the DEA keeps threatening to make it illegal out of sort of one part concern and two parts hysteria. And, you know, so the danger of Kratom is much more being caused by the uh, threatened prohibition and the lack of regulation than by the actual kratom itself. Kratom is a plant. Okay. So I, and for most other drugs, I personally think they should be in the medical realm mm -hmm. and they should be legal and regulated. And if someone has a problem, they should be treated. Like in Portugal, they decriminalized all drugs and their rates of addiction went down and their rates of HIV and hep C and all the other diseases you get from using dirty needles have plummeted. Not only did Portugal legalize drugs, but they reallocated resources from law enforcement to helping people find jobs and housing and healthcare. Mm -hmm. So instead of spending all their money on like these paramilitary units like we do roaming around busting one source of drugs after another, not understanding that there will always be another source of drugs because it's so lucrative and there are so many desperate people out there. You'll never stop it that way. They actually treated people. And I personally think the drug should be legal and under the healthcare realm and completely out of the law enforcement realm because it's a medical issue. People get addicted. You're not going to arrest your way out of this crisis or any of these issues. You're just going to treat people, you're not going to treat people. I mean, one thing we've learned from the war on drugs is that making drugs illegal doesn't stop anybody from using drugs. It right. just makes the criminals rich. It puts a lot of people in prison and it makes the people who use drugs use drugs that are illegal and deadly. And that's it. That is exactly right. Especially with fentanyl that's killing a lot of people now. You know, I, I talk, I've heard some people who had addiction issues say that I, w I was trying to get high, not kill myself. You know, they, they want to know what they're actually getting. And with the black market caused by the war on drugs, you have no idea what you're getting. And to your point about Kratom, I've actually um, not lobbied, but I've testified on behalf of the Kratom Consumer Protection Act that's being passed in different states. Here in Georgia, they passed it this legislation or this legislative uh, session. And it's being passed in Utah. And I think Nevada is about to to pass it, and Arizona has as well, and so there are some of those common sense uh, regulations that you talk about, you know, to, to make sure that we know what we're what we're taking when we when we buy kratom. I think that's definitely important. Now, you have an interesting point about having all drugs legal under the medical system, and that it has been tried in different places. And one of the huge benefits is that Hep C and H HIV or AIDS goes way down because a lot of people. I didn't realize this until I read a book by Judge Gray about the war on drugs. He, he ran as a libertarian uh, VP in 20, 2008, but he talked about that the hep C and the HIV crisis really originated in the IV drug user community, and it was because it was of prohibition that it spread like it did. Right, exactly. Um, and the needle exchange programs have been directly correlated with um, – with lowering of HIV and hep C. But um, if we were to go further than that and 
a lot of us are in favor of safe injection sites, mm-hmm. safe injection facilities, which is sort of the next level beyond uh, clean needles. Right. It's like people who are against safe injection facilities where people can use drugs in the presence of inject uh, opiates in the presence of medical professionals. People who are against it are like, oh, you're enabling drug use. But as someone who's in recovery from addiction, mm-hmm. and I wrote a memoir about that, Free Refills, about my struggle with opiates, um, if you're addicted to opiates, you're going to use opiates, whether or not you have a roof over your head and whether or not you have a clean needle. You're just addicted. You're not in control over it. So, you know, I'm obviously in favor of, of clean needles, but, you know, you could either let people you're not encouraging use you're saving lives and a certain percentage is something like 20 percent actually get into recovery because you befriend them and rope them in in the safe injection facility so it's a really good pathway into treatment so i think that the opposition to safe injection facilities is so counterproductive and i just read an article yesterday in the daily beast about how the Trump administration is now going after safe injection facilities, saying that they're just like crack houses. Mm. Now, you couldn't possibly deliberately use more stigmatizing language and racist language if you wanted to, and you couldn't possibly like misunderstand addiction uh, more completely if you tried. I mean, they're not like crack houses. They're trying to save people's lives. They're run by medical professionals. Mm -hmm. They're a pathway into treatment and they're understanding that people who are addicted use drugs anyway. So why not make it safe for people so they don't die from a fentanyl overdose and they have a pathway into treatment. So I just think that there's still a lot of work to be done educating politicians and the public at large about the nature of addiction. Mm-hmm. It's not something people just are doing for fun. They don't have control over it and they really need treatment like they do in Portugal. They treat everybody. They don't just like uh, shun them and cast them out from society. And that's right about the safe inje- injection sites that that's actually been tried different places. Switzerland had it in Liverpool and England uh, back in the 80s. They tried that. And what they found was when you allowed people to have access to their drug of choice, which included like cocaine, heroin, and other drugs, under a medical uh, supervision, that homelessness went down. People started working again, and the incidence of different kinds of diseases went way down as well, and so did petty crime. And so the idea that these places don't work is 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 proven false that this is like you said a pathway to helping people action sites don't work that it's been tried in different places and they've had some really great success and that if we do put all of the drugs underneath the medical world then people will have access to a lot more effective drugs because there's a lot in schedule one right now that actually has benefits like lsd mdma psilocybin uh, and different ones that people don't have access to that even in small doses that they're finding that has a lot of cognitive benefits and actually can help with mental health as well. Well, it's interesting some of the drugs that are in Schedule 1. Again, that seems very political because psilocybin, for example, in magic mushrooms, isn't addictive. Like, I don't understand, like, you don't get addicted to it. Like opiates or benzodiazepines, Valium, uh, Ambient, you know, things that we use, people use every day are in Schedule 2, 3, or 4 that are very addictive. But things like psilocybin, and there's been this renaissance of research into exactly the substances that you're mentioning. LSD, psilocybin is called the psychedelic renaissance, um, and they're really finding some of it to be potentially really helpful for depression that doesn't respond to other medications. In fact, they just approved a version of ketamine, uh, Special K, the party drug ketamine, for really serious refractory depression. And they don't quite know how it works, but they think it sort of resets the brain and interrupts sort of the negative patterns that you get stuck in during depression. I'm sure that's sort of a a overly simplified uh, explanation that a uh, neuropharmacologist could explain in more detail. But, um, you know, it's really interesting. I was doing some research um, for a blog on this and I came across an article by my dad in 1986, Lester Grinspoon, where he's like, we've got to get these psychedelics off the streets and into the lab because they could have really severe psychiatric, really critically important psychiatric implications. And this was in 1986. 
which is, um, you know, 31 years ago. And I was like, go dad. You know, my dad was really a visionary on, on psychedelic drugs as well as he was on cannabis. That's fantastic that he, he was a pioneer with cannabis. Definitely. I wasn't aware that he was, uh, also calling for psychedelics to be researched and used in a, a clinical setting. Cause I think, yeah, there's a, a organization called maps. I don't know if, if Oh yeah. No, I met Rick Doblin, the head at my dad's house, at my house growing up. Um, my dad wrote a book called psychedelic drugs reconsidered, just like he wrote a book, marijuana reconsidered. And he wrote a book called psychedelic reflections, just like he wrote the book, marijuana uses. However, his psychedelic work was incredibly excellent. But it got overshadowed because he was in, in the trenches on the marijuana stuff. So I think that had he not been so uh, prominent in the marijuana issue, the other books would have gotten a lot of attention. But it just he was in the news every day about the marijuana stuff. So the other stuff didn't get as much attention as it deserves. But his book, um, Psychedelic Drugs Reconsidered, just according, you know, according to his title, was basically saying, hey, why are these drugs locked up? Just because this crazy guy, Timothy Leary, ran around and sort of made a spectacle out of everything doesn't mean you should get rid of all these drugs. They have a lot of therapeutic benefit, like MDMA for depression, all kinds of potential benefit. Yeah, definitely. And there is a conspiracy that Timothy Leary and the CIA were in cahoots <laughs> to do that. So that's something that I've definitely heard uh, as far as that goes. I don't know if I'd believe that conspiracy. It's sort of like you could say that uh, the super pro marijuana activists are in conspiracy with the prohibitionists. I think it's just a de facto uh, convergence of um, of sort of uh, interest, kind of uh, unintended consequences rather than a conspiracy. But that's very interesting to hear. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a conspiracy <laughs> fan because you know especially with cannabis research, the army studied cannabis with soldiers, and what they found is that after the soldiers smoked cannabis, that they had zero aggression towards other people, and so the army was like, we have to ban this because we're not going to get people to be able to kill other people if they are taking this uh, taking this plant, and you right. know, the, the LaGuardia report back in the day of Henry Anslinger you know, talking about, uh, you know, that it should be kept legal because they didn't see any problem with it. And then the 1980s, they had a DEA judge actually rule that it should be taken out of Schedule 1, but the government ignored the, their own DEA judge's ruling on that. No, absolutely. And the whole the whole thesis of who you brought up earlier, Alex Berenson's book, is that it makes people psychotically violent. And the irony is that it, like, it, if you know anybody that uses it, it doesn't make people violent at all. It makes them want to just relax and veg out. I mean, occasionally people can have an anxiety attack, which isn't, you know, harmless. And rarely it can cause people to have a very bad reaction, but it doesn't turn people into axe murderers like he pretends it does. As I mentioned before, this is crime fiction. It's not nonfiction. They put it in the wrong category when they publish the book. So I, I agree with you. It's, um, you know, and there have been studies that like in, intimate partner violence, domestic violence goes down among cannabis users. I mean, uh, it's actually, um, you know, the violence, there have been a lot of studies both ways, but the studies that show an increase in violence, again, have been part of the 40-year uh, jihad to show how dangerous marijuana is. So it's a question of how valid any of those studies are in the first place. Yeah, definitely. And, and talking about the idea that domestic abuse goes down, that's very interesting because they don't really talk about alcohol. And 40% of the people who com commit murder, they have alcohol in their system. And 20 to 25% of the people who do get murdered also have alcohol in their system. I know that's not uh, causal or anything like that, but it's interesting. You know, that statistic doesn't. Well, it doesn't could get be causal. Hard. I mean, alcohol does decrease your inhibitions and increase that's aggression. That's pretty much been proven but you know it's so marijuana is so non-toxic compared to alcohol and tobacco and it just mystifies me to no end how these people put so much effort into fighting cannabis when they could be putting their time towards helping us educate people about the half a million people that die every year from tobacco or the 88,000 people a year that die from alcohol and you know it's just hard to you know, I think the funding is a lot of it. It's the juicy NIDA dollars or, you know, these groups like Smart Approaches to Marijuana that are just a con conglomeration of all the industries that will lose money if cannabis is legalized. I mean, it's just so whipped out of proportion. We've just got to keep it 
in perspective. I, I don't understand why there's such a such a outrage against this substance that is safer than alcohol and tobacco, which when cannabis is legal, the alcohol use tends to drop in states 10 to 20 percent. Now, from a harm reduction point of view, that's a huge victory. The addiction psychiatrist should be dancing in the streets. They should be clamoring for cannabis legalization, but instead they're some of the chief opponents. And that doesn't make any sense from a harm reduction point of view, except for the fact that they've sort of been conditioned by all the research they've done, which has been sort of tainted to think that it's just like ideologically bad in an ideologic sort of uh, deep belief system type of way. But you have a drug that hasn't killed anybody ever that uh, for an adult to use, you know, if they don't drive, um, it's perfectly safe that um, causes people to drink less alcohol. They substitute. Uh, why wouldn't the addiction psychiatrist be in favor of this? It doesn't make any sense. I'm just really puzzled. And I think part of it has to do with the, the two narratives that don't cross paths that I alluded to before. But I'm still trying to figure this out because, you know, these are my colleagues and in some cases my friends, but we just, it's really hard to find common ground. That is interesting about perspective and what you're exposed to. A lot of times that people are in these closed loops of their of their colleagues or their friends, and they just keep talking about the same things. They read the same things, and they don't go outside of their their social box, if you will, to find the information that might counter their bias. I'm sure they think the same thing as me. They think exactly. Peter Grinf is a, a, a great doctor. He's a great guy. He's friendly. He's great in the opiate issue, but he's nuts about cannabis and thinks it's a good thing, and doctors are supposed to think it's a bad thing. So who is this wacko? I mean, I'm sure they think the same thing about me in the other direction, So, which is fine, but – well, that's a good thing to... about, about those folks because, you know, every if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so with the psychiatric addiction folks, I think they, they really have that, uh, that mindset. Now, let's talk about for a second before you have to go here, Peter. I really appreciate your time today about cannabis and addiction because I did have a researcher on recently, and he thinks that cannabis addiction is going to be a huge problem in the future. And we're not seeing... Um, really the full extent of that yet, and we're going to see that in the next few years. Right. Um, I'll bet that researchers never tried cannabis, and I'll bet that researchers have been addicted to opiates. And I could just tell you, having been addicted to opiates and having in previous life smoked acres of cannabis, that it's, I would say, almost offensive to use those two words in the same sentence. Like opiates completely hijack your brain. They take over your decision-making and they um, affect your ability to decide right and wrong, and it's a progressive addiction that could lead to death. Whereas cannabis addiction, for some people, a minority of people, can, can have very serious ramifications. But for most people, it's more of a dependence where they use it to escape reality. And, um, you know, they just, uh, they lose out on things because they, they start using cannabis instead of going out and seeing friends, but it's not this like life ruining event, like, uh, an addiction to, to, to cocaine or methamphetamine or alcohol or opiates is. So I just think that we need to sort of define cannabis addiction, quote unquote, in a way that sort of, um, approaches sort of the reality of what the addiction is. And again, there are some cases of very severe cannabis addiction, but your average case of cannabis dependence isn't really analogous to um, your average case of like opiate addiction. I, I said on Twitter the other day that I'd take a severe case of cannabis use disorder over a mild case of opiate use disorder any day, and people went berserk. They got really offended. And I'm like, why are you getting so offended? And I, a couple of people had really bad experiences where they had had family members um, have bad outcomes that they attributed to cannabis. But, um, you know, again, having experience, extensive experience with virtually every drug, unfortunately, in my personal history, uh, which is actually helpful. I just I don't I think there's a lot of fear of the unknown. And I just I don't quite understand how they can just. Uh, lump it in the same category. When I was at rehab for my opiate addiction and I was at the Talbot Recovery Center, Doug Talbot, the founder of this 
famous rehab center. I, of course, don't think rehab works at all, so I'm not a big fan of rehab. I think you just sit there and repeat slogans for 90 days and get charged $100,000, and then people go out and relapse. So I'm not a huge fan of rehab anyways. But he said to me, a drug is a drug is a drug. And I'm like, so cannabis is the same thing as methamphetamine. And he's like, yes, a drug is a drug is a drug. And I'm like, how could anybody even listen to you? Why am I paying to be here? You should be paying me. I mean, a drug isn't a drug is a drug. You can't, you can't put cannabis in the same category. You can't put any of the drugs in the same category with each other. I mean, some of them have the same common pathway in terms of the dopamine receptors in your brain, but they're totally different. The treatments are different. The culture is different. The psychiatric uh, effects are different. And I couldn't believe this simple reductionist philosophy. And I'm not saying that the addiction people by any means are as, you know, as sort of brainless as the rehab people. There are a lot of really, really, really smart people. But uh, this concept that an addiction is an addiction is an addiction, I'm not quite sure I buy into that. I think that's a, that is a great point and a great way to end the conversation today. But I'd love to have you back on, Peter, and talk about addiction and talk about the language that people are using to define substance use disorder and trying to peg people into these diagnostic boxes that doesn't really reflect reality. And I think it's, it's really important that you talk about culture as well, because when people do use drugs and, and there is a culture around that, and I don't think that's taken into account a lot of times with the socioeconomic effects and everything else that goes into using drugs because humans are extremely complex creatures and everybody is so different and so i think they're i think you you know your experience with rehab unfortunately is an experience a lot of people are having i agree and that would be a wonderful conversation as was this thank you for having me and i would love to uh come on again this is the first hopefully the first of several conversations yeah definitely peter i appreciate your time and i appreciate your work now, what group of doctors are you working with? To you have a, a foundation or an organization that's pushing oh, for yeah, cannabis? It's, it's a great group called Doctors for Cannabis Regulation, and the website is dfcr.org. Doctors for Cannabis Regulation, and we're just pushing for legalization of cannabis because we think that the harm of cannabis, most of it, comes from it being illegal, just as we've discussed on the show, and. We're really pushing for um, legalization and sensible, smart regulation, not for blanket commercialization, but just for it to be legalized and sensibly regulated so that nobody's getting arrested unnecessarily, but also, you know, it's, it's legalized in a safe and healthy way. Definitely. And I, I would totally agree with that as well. And I think the word sensible is something that's not uh, applicable to most conversations <laughs> that people are having nowadays. So I really appreciate your conversation today, Peter. Really enjoyed it. A lot of great information. And where can people find your work? What's the best place to find that? Oh, yeah. Well, my book is on Amazon. It's Three Refills, A Doctor Confronts His Addiction. And it's on Amazon if you want to hear, you know, my life philosophy is if you're going to screw up your life, you might as well do it in style. So I had the state police and the DEA raid my office in 2005, which I would not particularly recommend. And uh, if you want to communicate with me, the PeterGrinspoon.com has a thing that goes right um, – to my website, uh, excuse me, to my email. So I'm pretty easy to get in contact with as well. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you for being on the show today. I advise everybody to check out his book and to follow him on Twitter. Uh, Peter's got a great Twitter feed and he shows a different side uh, or the full side really of what's going on with opioids in the country today, also with medical cannabis or cannabis legalization in general. I, I think it's very important to have these open and honest conversations and that we can find common ground on a lot of these issues. And it's really about helping people feel better, empowering individuals to find their best health that they can while they're here on earth. So thank you, Peter, for your time. And thank you, everybody, for listening today. And we will see you next time. Bye-bye.